Sarah Kriegler is a Melbourne-based writer, director, and one half of Lemony S. Puppet Theatre. We always ask ourselves, is a puppet the best tool for telling this story? And if not, what's a better tool? Join Sarah and I as we discuss writing theatre in a contemporary arts landscape and new opportunities with the Lemony S. Puppet Lab. We have to have diversity across the arts and also in poetry. Join Sarah and I now, here on Talking Sock. Welcome to Talking Sock, your place for puppetry, arts and practitioners in Australia and abroad. My name is Pete Davidson and this is our second episode of Season 2 with my guest and lately mentor, Sarah Kriegler from Lebany S Puppet Theatre. We are recording today on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Sarah Thank you so much for recording with us today in your child's studio. That's right. <laughs> Such it's a cool little space. Pleasure. Thanks for asking me, Pete. Yes, we are in my daughter's bedroom. We tried to do it in the studio out the back, but there was a very loud bird and a lot of wind. So here we are in here Ada's are. bedroom. Doing a live one. It's nice to be out of lockdown and not be doing the zoomies. It's nice to have a fresh face in the room and, yeah, actually vibe off someone's energy, which is really nice too. Yeah. So Sarah... Every person I speak with has to have this question first. Mm. You ready for it? Yeah, go on. Why puppets? <laughs> you start with the curly ones first, don't you, Pete? <laughs> um, why puppets? It's a good question, Pete, especially when you're doing a podcast about puppetry. Well, this is how me and Jacob describe it, and, you know, not to speak for him, but I have spent a lot of time with him over the last... 17 years so I do know how he feels about this and it's very similar to how I feel about it so what we often say is that we use puppetry as a storytelling tool so for us in our work we only use puppets when puppets are the best tool for the job mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is that and no disrespect to anybody who does anything differently because that's just this is just my artistic aesthetic mm-hmm. so different to what some other puppet companies and puppeteers might do is that they will put the puppet at the front, as in the front of the work, so they've got an interest in making a puppet work. What we've got an interest in doing is making a piece of theatre and always what comes first is the content. Mm. So we always ask ourselves first, you know, well, is a puppet the best tool for telling this story? And if not, what's a better tool? Mm. That's probably the answer. And it just so happens that the stories that we want to tell need puppetry in it to be able to do that story justice. And, you know, I can, I think we're going to talk a little bit about um, our children's work, Picasso and his dog, in a little while. That's a perfect example of why puppets. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to tell the story of Pablo Picasso and a love affair that he had with a dog in the last part of his life. And the only way to tell that story is to use a puppet dog. But... We used an actor to play Picasso because the nuance of the performance that that character needed couldn't be done by a puppet. I mean, maybe it could, but actually it wouldn't be as good. We, we are always asking our, ourselves the questions, well, what's the best tool for the, telling this story? Can you remember when you first sort of figured out that you wanted to study puppetry or even discovered your first puppet? So after... 
high yeah, after high school, I went and I did a Bachelor of Arts majoring in drama studies at La Trobe Uni. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, we used to go and see shows and have to write a review as part of our assessment. And one of the shows we went to see was Ask the Captain by Hans Van Visual Theatre. Ah. And that was a retelling of, this, of the T.S. Eliot poem. I think it might have been The Wastelands. I can't remember. So I went and saw that show and I was really impressed with the way that story was told. I can't actually remember that much about it. I can remember the fulcrum and some kind of puppet on the fulcrum and it was like, oh, isn't that amazing? And I suppose my interest started there, but my professional interest started at that point. Mm. But when I think about it, it actually goes back much earlier. The very first show I remember seeing as a kid was actually a polyglot puppet theatre show. And I have the smallest of small memories. I actually remember the building more than I remember the show. I remember the little white building and something going on on the stage. And, I'm, and I know it was a puppet, a polyglot piece, but I can't remember how I know that. I think my mum told me that, maybe. But then also I have always been interested in story and objects. My dad, who was a, a cancer research scientist but a very imaginative man, he and I used to have this great thing that we used to do every night, which was my dad made the, the teddies talk. Aww. So, <laughs> And he developed all these mad characters with the bears and things. So we used to just, I don't know how I ever got to sleep actually because we were <laughs> screaming with laughter over this teddy talking nonsense that we used to do all the time. So really I suppose my understanding of how useful it is in telling stories started long ago probably with my dad, and then was reinforced along the way on the journey of becoming a professional artist, I suppose. That's gorgeous. Uh, was it sort of improv object theatre with the teddies, or was it a through line every night you picked off from when you left off? There was not a through line, but the characters were the same. Like, uh, you know, one character, for example, had a Mickey Mouse teddy, and he had these big yellow shoes or big yellow feet. Yep. So he was, like, quite vicious. He used to kick everybody. <laughs> but I used to think that was hilarious, the kick that Teddy would – no, Mickey would kick everyone. Mm. Teddy was much more gentle, you know. My mum's bear was involved as well. That was She's got this ancient old bear called Stick Eye, and he um, he was involved in, as well. So, yeah, so well, not a through line, but the characters were the same. That's gorgeous. Mm. So Lemmy S. Puppet Theatre. Yes emerged as a creative partnership between yourself and your partner, Jacob. Can you tell us the story about how that emerged and how that, or how perhaps you started with puppetry and then that led to Lemony S? It's quite a long story, probably, with lots of different threads that came together, but I'll do my best to be succinct. (laughs) So it's a long time ago now, 2002 maybe, I was invited to be part of a show called A Quarrelling Pair, which was produced by Aphids. They, they're still around. They're kind of like a multidisciplinary art group. They do all kinds of stuff. They're amazing. And they had found a, pla- a puppet play by a woman called Jane Bowles. So she was a bohemian writer in, in the late 1950s, late 1940s in New York. And she was a playwright and a poet and she'd written this weird puppet play. They had found this play and it had only ever been performed once before, which was when it was originally written. And they had an interest 
in developing this work. So they took this play, it was called A Quarrelling Pair, and they gave it to um, two contemporary Australian writers. Lally Katz is one of them and the other one was Cynthia Troop and they asked mm. them to write a companion piece for these works. So so each work was three different shows. Each of them was 10 minutes or 15 minutes long. They were about two sisters, a quarrel and a glass of milk. So that was a through line between yeah. all three of them. So this was this sort of mad show that we did and we did it first in the Melbourne Festival 20 million years ago. Then, weirdly, I went to my cousin's wedding. <laughs> and huh? at my cousin's wedding, I met Stephen Armstrong, who was at the time the company manager at Malthouse Theatre. And I and he also previously had been part of Hans Van Visual Theatre. There you go. So I, he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I make, I make puppetry and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And what are you working on? And I told him about this work, Quarrelling Pair. And he said, well, actually, we've got this little theatre that we're going to open called the Tower Room up in the, the gods of Malthouse. And <laughs> we're looking for interesting work, so you should come and talk to me about it. Around about the same time, I had been on tour with Black Hole Theatre um, on their show Caravan around Europe. And I had met Jacob at this time. And we, you know, started a relationship. So he was auditioning for College of the Arts to go and do animatoring. And he needed an audition piece. So we developed a little small puppet piece based on a song by the Tiger Lilies. And he got into VCA and did that course. At the same time when I was talking to Stephen Armstrong about Quarrelling Pair, Jacob and I were beginning to develop a new show together, which was called Apples and Ladders. It was an adult puppet piece. And because a Quarrelling Pair was quite a short work, Malthouse sort of said, well, what else have you got? Let's see if we can put some things together and make a fuller program. So that's how it happened. We developed Apples and Ladders as a sort of second half to a quarrelling pair. They were completely unrelated other than being adult puppet works. And I think that we were, that is Aphids and what became Lemonies Puppet Theatre, I think we were the first show to ever go on in the tower room at the Malthouse, but we'd have to check that. But I think that is true. Double bill. Yes. So then we we developed we basically launched Lemonier's Puppet Theatre without knowing we were launching a company that had any longevity in that season. We came up with a name based on a whole lot of stories about family dogs. My dad had a dog called Lemony and he used to go into he was from South Africa. He's still alive, so I shouldn't say he's from he was from there, but he's lived here for a long time now. He used to go out into the paddocks with his dog Lemony and stare up at the stars and try and find Sputnik. So he was sort of stargazing in South Africa while my mother, I hadn't met at this stage, they were both quite young, she was in Gippsland staring up at the stars also trying to find Sputnik with her dog. So it was kind of this story across stars and dogs and dreaming of what could be, which is where the, the name came from. So because... That's gorgeous. But uh, Lemony S is, so the dog's name from South Africa was Lemony. Yep. Where does the S come from? Well, because the S stands for soars, so as in soars into the sky. But you see, uh, if you say Lemony soars, it sounds dodgy. It sounds like you've got like yeah. Lemony festering soars. So we just removed that bit and left the S. 
Does um, it get caught up with Lebanese Snicket? All the time. All but the we time. didn't even know that existed at the time. No, it was before probably those books became... A thing. A thing. But it's good to clear that up, I think, on the record. To, yeah. to, to know the origin of that name. And it's sort of... The other thing is I, I do think... I don't know if this is completely true, but I think the first dog in space was called Laika. And I'm pretty sure that the English translation of that is Lemony, which is why my dad called his dog Lemony. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, we have things that inspire us. And I think for, I, I shouldn't speak for Jacob, but certainly for myself, the connections between humans and animals is certainly a driver in our work. Not all the works, but certainly some of the seminal works. That's what there's been a sort of a through line there, which, you know, makes sense of the name. And for yourself, is there a, a real affinity with animals? Yes. Well, well, we've always had a dog. And in fact, the, the little logo on our mm. symbol is our old boy, Clancy. He was an excellent hound. He died a few years back. And he, we put him in a show three weeks after we got him. Goodness. We did a show called The Shit Family Puppet Show and Clancy <laughs> was the performing dog and he was really bad at it, but it didn't matter because it was called The Shit Family. It's um, one way to really set the expectation for your audience. Yeah, there. the shit. S-H-I-T-E. It wasn't actually our, our idea. It was Megan Cameron, who's puppeteer. She's not working as much in puppetry these days, but she was part of Handspan and Black Hole and all of those things years ago. So it was actually her idea, and we just went along for the ride because she had a drag king character called Jack Shit, and <laughs> Jacob and I used to play the parents. So I was Mavis and he was Cyril. And it was bonkers. We did a lot of mad things with that troupe of people, including a show in the backyard for Fringe years ago. Oh, my God. Fantastic. Yeah. So I just want to quickly say 20 years odd later, maybe just under, yeah. where where is Lemony S transformed to and come to from that origin point? How would you describe it as a company now? Well, yeah, I mean, I... This is the thing. It's hard to – we haven't talked about art for so long because we've been in this crazy time. It's true. That I, I'm going to struggle to find the words and also just the whole sense of hubris trying to explain your own work and where you think you sit in a, in a patchwork of, of other companies I find a bit hard to talk about. So I don't know, Pete. I mean, I would say we're just doing what we do. Jacob's got this thing where he always says, you're only as good as your last show. And that's how we work, you know, in that we are always trying to do the next thing as good or better than we did the last thing, building on what we've learnt. I think we probably are at a point now where people know what we're doing and I think we sit between, in a, in a fairly unique place perhaps, between theatre, puppetry, children's work, work for families and also adult work so I think we have a kind of fairly unique little space there I hope we offer things to our community as well as the audiences I think we do through the pop festival and things like that well that's what I was going to say you know you've, you're not only performing and making work but you're facilitating spaces for other people to bring their work and it's funny because I was just about to ask about the 2020 festival of puppetry which you managed to produce in probably one of the most volatile landscapes for performing arts in the last hundred years, Isn't if we really it? think about it. Mm. How did you pull it off? And also, what does it take to run a festival of puppetry in Australia and in Melbourne? 
Well, I'm going to answer the second part first okay. because actually what it takes is collaboration and partnerships mm. because we do the Puppet Festival with La Mama Theatre and without them we really couldn't do it because they have, they're a funded company, so they have the infrastructure that we don't. So they can support us in a way that, well, I mean, we just couldn't do it without them. They've got the, the venues, they've got the ticketing system, They've got the audiences that come. Without that partnership and collaboration, we couldn't do it. For example, I know that Sue Wallace, you know, worked really hard with One Van and and probably had similar things where there was the collaboration of the town, but really the collaboration with the the theatre is key to its success. And then how do we do the 2020? Well, look, it was really a fluke. That is the (laughs) truth of the matter. I mean, of course we've got skills, like, yeah, Yeah. but... Uh, if you'll remember, we came out of lockdown five yep. for two weeks. We sure did. And then we went back into lockdown. And it's by some miracle it was in those two weeks. That tiny window. Yeah. yeah. So it was actually extraordinary. So Hayley Fox, who is the production manager at La Mama, she and I were working on it really since 2019. We, we were planning and rescheduling and reorganising everything and we really didn't think we were going to do it. We just kept saying to each other, let's just plan as if we're doing it. Let's just book that thing because uh, we might do it. You know, we just kept doing it like that until it got to the weekend before and we're like, oh, hang on, we're actually going to have to do the festival now. Like, <laughs> lucky we did those things, you know, like book people's accommodation and, and so on. But the 2020 festival was actually meant to be on in 2019. Yes. But in 2018... Little La Mama Theatre burnt down. It did. Which was just horrific. Not horrific. Look, there's many worse things in the world than that. But it was a great loss for Melbourne and it was pretty overwhelming because we, we don't live too far from La Mama. So I heard about it on the radio and I said to Jacob, I think I need to go down. And I stood in the street with Caitlin, who's the um, the one of the, the CEOs of La Mama, just like staring at the building burning to the ground. Like it was really... Oh awful and there was this group of people from all kinds of different artists just heard it on the radio and went down and we just all stood there in the street and watched it burn and it was mental harrowing yeah so and I think because we all knew I mean we've been involved with the La Mama for a very long time mm. we'd already would the community the arts community had already gone through buying the theatre off the landlord who was going to sell it. If he sold it, it would have been developed into apartments or something. So we'd already raised millions of dollars to buy it and then it burnt down, for God's sake. So anyway, the festival was meant to be on in 2019, but we postponed because it was too much pressure for La Mama to to try and do anything when they were down Mm. one venue at that stage. Well, I remember trying to launch One Orange Sock in early 2020 and that's when you were taking expressions of that's interest. That's right, yes. And so I was like, oh, just start it, I haven't got a show yet. And so, I was so upset yeah. with myself for not putting anything in. And then I ended up being in it anyway. So well, that's right. So that's what happened. It was meant to be 2019. We postponed it because of the fire to 2020. We had it all planned out and organised for 2020. <laughs> the fire was sort of an omen of what was going to happen that's to right. theatre in the 2020. And then, it, then, of course, COVID happened and we had to... We rescheduled it to September 2020, Yep. but we were still in lockdown <laughs> down here in Melbourne. That was number two. So we just rolled it over um, to 2021, 
Uh, we lost a lot of artists, of course, because people from Western Australia felt really worried about coming, which is fair enough because the borders have been so strict between Western Australia and, Western, and the rest of the country. Yeah. We had this amazing company coming from Indonesia, uh, Paper Moon Puppets, uh, and um, they were kind of our headlining show. Sure. And, of course, they couldn't come. Um, yeah, so anyway, we just we decided to focus on East Coast artists and just keep doing it in case we might, you know, keep planning, keep booking things, keep organising things in case we might get to do it. And by some miracle, we did. It did, and it did happen, and I, I think it was so necessary mm. that it happened at the time that it did especially because you know when you're literally diving in and out of lockdown that's right folks we did six lockdowns in melbourne over the course of two years and there may be a seventh we're not sure yet so mm. there is these little gaps and these little waves of time that we get a chance to perform and get out there and do the work and so what was the reaction from the festival how did you how was it received and how did you feel after that huge amount of you know, time and effort, what was the catharsis? Was there catharsis? Was there oh, definitely. that yield? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I think we, myself and Haley, were so tired by the time we opened that we didn't realise we were going to enjoy ourselves. <laughs> and when it started and, you know, get all these families coming in to um, experience art together, it was really quite overwhelming and... It wasn't the greatest version of the festival that we could have done, but we did our best in the situation that we were in with a very small audience capacity because of the capacity limits that the government had put on venues. Mm. And um, just all the things, we don't need to go into it. We all have lived through what the things have been in the last two years. But I think it was amazing. And and I remember at one point Jacob saying, because I, I was saying, we're never doing this again. We're never doing this again. And once the festival was up, Jacob just went, yeah, but we will because it's really good. And <laughs> look how much fun everyone's having. Look at the variety of work that is able to be put on in just an amazing short amount of time. Not that anyone, everyone's working on it for years. We understand that. But what I mean is like within the seven days, you could see a huge array of different types of work in this tiny space, you know, of yeah. between two blocks and Carlton, basically, yeah, that you could walk around and see roving puppets and then mm. jump into a, a gallery space and watch a show and then jump out the back courtyard to see another show and then mm. jump to the theatre and see that. It, it was special. I think it's really worth acknowledging how how much it gave us hope that, that theatre is going to come back and has come back. Yeah. One of the f- shows in the festival... Mm-hmm was your show Picasso and his dog, yep. which I think has been quite a, a, you know, it's quite a mammoth show. It's a big show for that little space in, in the mama. Can you tell us about that show and, and how it came together? It was a beautiful story about Pablo Picasso and his pet. <laughs> and I think it was one of those lovely emergences of puppetry as a tool in theatre mm-hmm. that you explained earlier. So can you tell us a bit more about that and how to come about and where'd you get the concept? Yeah. Sure. That show had a very, very long gestation. More than 10 years ago, there was a photographic essay printed in The Age by a man called David Douglas Duncan. He's an... I know he's got <laughs> what a name. Three first names. Yes. <laughs> Crazy. Anyway, he was a photographer. He's still alive, actually. He's an American photographer. 
and he was friends with all kinds of artists and Pablo Picasso was one of them. So in the late 1950s, he went down to the south of France and took photos of Picasso in his studio. And at the time, David Douglas Duncan had a dash hound pup and called Lump. And Lump actually means rascal in German. Ah. Anyway, Lump, so this little dog. And the, the pup was being terrorised by one of his other dogs who was, I don't, I don't know what sort of dog that was, but the pup and the big dog weren't getting on well. So he took this pup with him to Picasso's studio in the south of France. And Picasso had had dogs his whole life. But at, up until this point, they had just been things that were around in his life. But he wasn't really a dog man. He, he just had them, you mm-hmm. know. And this guy, David Douglas, arrived. David, I forgot his name now. Just David. David. Just, just David. David. So David arrived um, to, to, for this, to do this photographic session with the pup. He put the pup down on the ground and Picasso looked at this dog and fell head over heels in love with him. Mm. About 10 years ago, the photographs of this dog at Picasso's house were published in The Age. And I kind of looked at those pictures and thought, wow, what a beautiful story. And then I left it for years, like six years or something. I just, maybe even longer. I can't even remember. It's all, look, time is weird at the moment. (laughs) Let's just say in the distant past, I saw the pictures I left it for about five or six years, but I, I kept having this, every now and again, those pictures would surface in my mind and then eventually I thought, I'm going to get that actual book that the, those pictures were advertising. I'd cut them out of the paper um, mm-hmm. at the time and I went and bought the book and then from there I developed the story. But, of course, the story, look, to be honest with you, I don't really like Picasso's work all that much. I, I don't like his paintings he was a dodgy, bit of a dodgy guy. Yeah. You know, he had very dubious relationships with women. But I used it as a uh, frame to investigate the human-animal relationship and how we have coexisted with dogs for something like thirty thousand years. Um, and when and and when you go into the research around the human-dog relationship, it's so deep and so complex. There's a whole scientific school of thought that. Um, believes that uh, we are the modern humans because we actually domesticated dogs, right. that there was that they kept us safe, they kept us, they, you know, that our ancient camps, they cleaned up all the rubbish so that, that we didn't get sick, all of these kind of amazing interconnected things about humans and dogs means that <laughs> they live in our lives and we live in their lives. So I really use the story as a catalyst to investigate that relationship between dogs and humans, but also dogs, humans, and art, because humans have been drawing pictures of animals and making sculptures of animals since the dawning of time. Since since we realised we could actually make art, we've been making it of the creatures around us. So I was also trying to talk about how we think that we are above the natural world, but actually we're interconnected. Mm. So... Um, Anyway, what was the question? <laughs> Tell us about the show. I guess here we go. So there's a couple of devices that I thought were really interesting in the show. The first was the voiceover of using your children uh, yeah. to create sort of a, a through line of 
facts about the of puppies and and things oh, yeah. that happen and the script was sort of almost just aligned itself and, and dropped in itself and I think it was also a connection to the children who you were you know your, yeah. who was your audience that was one the other was that you used several forms of puppetry in it so there was a bit of shadow oh, there yeah. was the, the, the main dog and who was being handled at any time by one of Picasso's art assistants mm. I was really curious as to how you decided on the, the tools of puppetry that you explain mm-hmm. you use how did you figure out the form for each of those different moments but also oh, yeah. Um, why are you using your children as the uh, as the voiceovers, and and what was that you know what was that designed to do? Yeah, well, the voiceovers came about because did you notice the other voiceover of the woman's voice that was in that work as well? There was like this one was working. This yes, one, right. So that that voiceover is text from Gertrude Stein, and she wrote this crazy essay about Picasso, watching him work and then reflecting and writing about Picasso working because they were really good mates back in France. The original idea was, because when I I was working with a dramaturg called Margaret Cameron, who is a very, very dear friend of mine, like my art mother, Mm -hmm. um, who sadly died um, about six years ago now, but she was integral to the creation of Picasso and his dog. So she had found that text from Gertrude Stein and we had this idea. I think it was my idea. She she was actually correct in the end. I said, this sounds like we should get children to read this. And she said, I disagree. I said, well, I'm still going to try it. Mm-hmm. So that's what I tried. I got my kids and another kid to read out the, the Gertrude Stein text and we recorded them doing it. And it was terrible <laughs> because it's such strange text you need to be a performer to be able to understand what she's actually doing with that text. And the kids obviously weren't old enough to be able to access that kind of level of depth. But what was really amazing was in between the takes, they were chatting and they were talking about things. And I went, oh, Mm. that's what we need. So then we went down to the sound designer's studio and I showed the kids videos of different things, of artists working, and I just got them to describe what they were seeing. So that was the first layer is is like the kids in the story describe what they're seeing in terms of the art. So Picasso is drawing a straight line and some kid says, now he's drawing a line. I wonder what he's going to do with that. And that was all very improvised. Mm -hmm. So I just showed them things and they answered it and then I found the place in the performance for that to sit. And then the second layer of that was my daughter Ada, who was also quite into animals. I got her to read out dog facts. So as if she was reading a book about humans and dogs. So that's how the the kids' voices work in the show. And you're right, it is actually about the audience. It's about two things, actually. It's about the information of the dogs, but it's also... What's so great about children's theatre mm. is, and well, actually not so much children's theatre, but work for families because I love an audience that's mixed between adults and kids. But what I really love is when the kids are talking to their parents or their, their adult that they're with, that they're saying, what's going on? And then the parents saying, oh, well, this is happening. as well. So it's actually like a three-way conversation between the art on stage the adult, the kid, and then back to the art. And I just love that. And I wanted to encourage the kids in the audience to be asking questions and feel free to say things 
and to chat to Picasso if they wanted to or chat to their mum if they wanted to. So that's what those that other layer of the kids' voices is doing. It's giving the audience, the children in the audience, permission to make a bit of noise and ask questions. And so you're creating all those little aha moments. You're creating yeah. that and you're watching that manifest. And is that why you, you know, there's another show that you've done recently, Charlie and the War Against the Grannies yep. at the Art Centre in Melbourne where access was a real sort of feature and mm-hmm. there were several performances that were relaxed, some with Auslan interpreters, some of the lights on. Is that so that you can manifest those? Art? Obviously they're to include and, and keep lots of different kinds of audiences, allow them access to that space. But is that what you were trying to manifest as well in you know, those little aha moments and those spaces for the conversation between adults to take place? Do you mean in Charlie or in Picasso? In both. Okay. Yeah. Well, yes, that is exactly what we're trying to do. There's nothing worse, I think, than children being told to be quiet in the theatre. <laughs> like, that drives me insane. I mean, I did a lot of schools touring years ago and... Oh, teachers ripping shreds off kids for them being noisy in the performance when we as the performers had stirred them up to the point where they are all screaming that's what we want we don't want them to be sitting like polite stunned mullets we want them to be moving and engaged and loving it and squirming and you know that's what you do as a kid and you should be given permission to do that in terms of the charlie work and the relaxed performances and things that you're talking about that was actually from the art center they really want to open the doors to everybody. Mm. So they have a whole, di- whole lot of different access programs, including cheap tickets for kids who don't normally get to go to the theatre, the relaxed performances, so for kids who might be um, sensitive to uh, too much stimulation, that, that's when they leave on the lights and we lower the sound and all of that stuff and we have the breakout room. And they also publish this amazing visual documentation of yes, the work. Yes, that so was fantastic. Yeah, it's really beautiful so that you can see and know what's coming so that the kids can come in and be prepared for any loud noises and things like that. So that, that that's coming from the art centre. But, you know, we wholly, wholeheartedly endorse that and we're more than thrilled to be part of it. For sure. So back to devices and oh, the yeah. different kinds of puppetry that you... Let's, let's include Charlie now because I think both works, you know, include a range of puppetry mm-hmm. and, you know, there's Jacob's Cranky and there's The Shadows and there's puppets on sticks and there's puppets in wheelchairs and... Uh, I'm really curious about how you look at a text and see a script and then go, that suits this device, that suits this device. I would say they're not really looking at the script and working out the device. The two things are completely linked. So, for example, when I was writing Picasso, because I come from a puppetry background, I really knew what I... I mean, I know Ronnie Burkett says work it out on the floor, but I'm actually working it out on the page. Nice. So I'm actually thinking, okay, how many pairs of hands have I got? And then is it possible to have this person doing this while the other person's doing that? Like I'm actually kind of designing and planning while I'm writing. And then, of course, that then leads into a conversation with the designers and the puppet makers about what I've written and how I think it could work. So the dog, for example, in Picasso and his dog, I was really clear that it had to be as close to a real dog as possible. I wanted the the two puppeteers to double up as studio assistants because that's another thing that Jacob and I are really interested in is what's the relationship between the live performer and the puppet. And I'm not a big fan of just having a puppeteer on stage 
and a puppet. I'm really interested in investigating what's the relationship there and then what does that relationship do to an audience member. So in Picasso, I made them to be studio assistants so that they could be involved in the action of the studio as humans but then also as puppeteers. And then that sort of deepens the whole story in some ways too because you've got these two characters that are playing with Picasso and enhancing the things he does and then he's complimenting them on their work and, you know, so it's kind of like a, it deepens the story. But if if you're thinking about that relationship between puppet and puppeteer, because we tend not to hide the puppeteers in our work. Sometimes we do, but most of the time we're investigating what that relationship is. So the dog we knew it had to be able to be picked up really easily so that the puppeteer could go from puppeteer to studio assistant patting the dog rather than manipulating the dog. And that, of course, infects, yeah, it affects the way it's designed. So in that show, we worked with Jonathan Oxlade as the designer. What he picked up on, I suppose, was the playfulness of the story. And so he was like, well, I'd like this dog to be kind of real and kind of like a toy all at once. So that's why he's designed the way he is. In Charlie, you mentioned the granny who's in a wheelchair and that's that's another solve on the page because we, we knew how many actors we had. We had three actors and a lot to do because hmm. it's a really dense book that that was adapted from called Charlie and the War Against the Grannies by Alan Bro. So I needed to create puppet, a granny puppet, that basically could be operated without being operated. Mm. So she was put into a wheelchair. And that was something that we worked out in the creative development, which was um, about 12 months, take out that COVID year, but 12 months before the it was meant to preview, we had a creative development where we solved those kind of things. So we had the designer in the room, A.D. Chisholm, and AD's done quite a lot of puppetry in the back, in the past as well, and myself. So we were the two of us were kind of driving how the puppetry might work, because everyone else was actors or singers. What does it take to build a show like Charlie or Picasso and his dog? Well, they're actually pretty different shows in a way, because Picasso was our work, so it was like an independent event no not event what do I mean an independent theatre company so we had to raise all the money ourselves I did that we you know, wrote a million grants got the money we actually and then we needed it took almost two years to get the premiere season of the show we premiered it in 2017 and then it took another 12 months to a year of taking it around to all the arts markets and presenting it for us to get the big tour in 2019 so it took a long time for that to kind of eventuate because we had to do it all ourselves. Charlie was really, really different. Alan Bro and myself were match made by the Art Centre. Oh, We'd nice. actually met many years ago on other things, but we have a mutual friend, Amor Harrington, who was originally the programmer of Children's and Families at the Art Centre. And Alan had said to her, I really want to adapt this for the stage. And she said, oh, well, I want, you should talk to Sarah Griegler about that because I think the two of you could work well together and she knows about making children's theatre. So 
we got match made. I think they gave us 10,000 bucks to do a creative development, which was where we tested out the relationship and worked out whether we could work together. And Alan wrote a few songs. We worked out a few stylistic things about the puppetry. We brought in an actor and a musician to kind of have a little muck about. And then from there, I mean, this never happens, Pete. This never happens, right? But the art centre was invested in some big show that fell over. And so they had a pot of money that they needed to put somewhere. And they came to Alan and me and said, so you know that show you're working on? Do you reckon you could have it ready by blah, blah? We want a commission. And we're like, oh, okay. And then they just gave us a huge amount of money (laughs) to make the show. Right. It was crazy. And then we got match made with some producers, which was CDP up in Sydney. So they kind of helped us get it up. But that never happens, Pete. It never happens. So it'll never happen again and we couldn't believe that it happened the first time. But it did and that was really an amazing experience. Picasso really took, I'd say, four or five years of slow and steady work to get it to where, you know, to the premiere season. Many, many grant applications, you know, lots of unpaid hours, all of that stuff, whereas Charlie was completely different. You are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Sarah Krieger. We'll be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow at One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. More with Sarah in just a second. Want to start a conversation at your next gig or festival? Then grab your wallets because we've got merch. Head to our Redbubble store to get your hands on some signature One Orange Sock designs. We believe that podcasts should be advert-free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangesock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with me, Pete Davidson and Sarah Kriegler. Sarah, recently we actually met formally because I was doing a residency with Rachel Arts Victoria and you became my mentor. Wasn't I just so mentory? Oh, so mentory. It was the best little <laughs> half hour Zoom call. I got a little allocated time with you once a week. And this is obviously coming from Regional Arts Victoria's grant from Creative Victoria and the government to make creative workers have spaces in schools and my practice as a puppetry artist became one of those selections and I want to ask you what was it like being in the the role of mentor to several young or emerging or even experienced artists and how did you find yourself as someone who was seeing all these different things happen in different places and schools? I really enjoyed it and it was really great to have a part-time job for whatever it was six months that was like really helpful in the pandemic world I mean, I don't know about you, Pete, but like I've been doing this a long time, but I still suffer from do I actually know anything syndrome? Like (laughs) I really do suffer from that. And so it was great to actually be useful to people and go, oh, actually I do know some things that could be useful because I have done quite a lot over the years. I thought it was a great program. I'm really sad that, that COVID, you know, stuffed it as much as it did because I know that Regional Arts Victoria was very considered in the schools that they were going into with the artists and a lot of those schools don't get that kind of stuff Mm. normally. So that was such a shame. But here's hoping some 
some department somewhere will find the money again and, and those kids will get an opportunity to actually have the artists in the room. So for those of you who don't know the program, what happened was that COVID <laughs> shut schools down again. So a lot of the outcomes were delivered either early or online. Or very late in my case. Yeah. It's still being delivered. Yeah, so yeah. that was disappointing but understandable. I mean, we are in a global pandemic. As much as we want to think we're not, we are. Yeah. Yeah. It's but I, I really enjoyed that role and I've met some excellent artists, yourself being one of them. Stop. And No, no, it's really great. It was, it's great. I love, you know, I, I, I never want to be the kind of artist who's only working with certain people, even though there's a lot of value in that because it becomes so easy to do. Mm. You know, we, I, I really love meeting new artists and looking at what they're doing and finding ways that we could do something together. It's really, it's cool. Well, just as well, because the reason I ask, you know, about yourself as mentor is because you're about to start a training program with the Puppet Lab the next year from March to December, one night a week for puppeteers to come together and work towards an outcome in puppetry. What is your vision for this program? And the fact that it's free for artists mm. to be on board it's kind of unprecedented for something like that to happen in Australia. And obviously, you know, me and my background, how excited I am by the opportunity of something that could potentially educate me in this art form more. I'm just so excited to hear about your vision and what your, your plans are for it. Yes. Our plans. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, we do have plans. I, I, I should just give a little bit of background on it. So it's kind of based on the St. Anne's warehouse puppet lab in New York, which mm. we had, the opportunity to see a bunch of the kind of graduating pieces while we were living in New York between 2018 and 2019. But, of course, we're going to tailor it to what what we need here. It's come about for a number of reasons. Firstly, that there is no other training opportunities, um, long-term training opportunities in Australia anymore. When I started, there was none which is why I ended up going to Argentina and studying there. And then, obviously, there was the VCA course for a while and that produced some amazing artists like Sam Rutledge and Tamara Roos and Hamish Fletcher. All of those guys came out of that program, though they'd all been doing puppetry before that, but that's where they really, I suppose, launched from. Since then, there hasn't really been any opportunity for people to learn in depth and... It's come about because every time we offer a workshop for adults, it books out in 10 seconds Absolutely. and people keep saying, when can we do more, when can we do more? And and Jacob felt, and, and we live in a multicultural country and we will, he, he and myself have always thought, well, it's very white, puppetry is very white in Australia, sure. um, and which is also in some ways a bit baffling considering that we're part of Asia and there's such a strong tradition of puppetry in Southeast Asia mm. and that isn't reflected in our puppetry community. I mean, very, I mean... Yeah, no, you've never, heard, never thought of it like that. It's really interesting. Yeah, so one of the things about the lab is we were working with Multicultural Arts Victoria to try and redress that in that we, you know, it's like we have to have diversity across the arts and also in puppetry, you know, like we, it's important. It's really important that we are reflecting the community that we live in. So 20% of the places in the lab are reserved for culturally and linguistically diverse artists or creatives. So that's really important and that's something that we definitely want to do. 
So that's one. Of, that's not what St Anne's do in New York, but that's something that we are really passionate about. So that's one of our visions, that we're training people who want to know stuff and also people who are culturally diverse. But really in terms of what we're going to do in the lab, I think that will be really guided by the people who end up in it. Because, you know, for example, you might get someone who's got loads of experience and they really just want some help in how do I take this show that I've made and get it into the malt house? I've just pulled that out of my hat. I don't know if they've Well, I'm still it. interested in the question. How yeah, do yeah. I do that? Yeah, so that person might be more interested in the kind of producing aspect of what we're going to be able to offer. We've got a really awesome producer called Samantha Butterworth who's going to be doing some masterclasses in producing. But then you might get somebody who really wants to know about hand to wild puppets. So then we're going to like, okay, I think I'm looking at you, Pete, and thinking of all the things that you might want to do. And well, I'm you like, know I'm going to apply. Yeah, great. <laughs> plotting, plotting. And I'm like, well, then we need to get an expert in, in hand and rod. But we have spoken to lots of people, like Philip Mitchell from WA and Sunny Tilders from Creature Technology, Sam Rutledge down in Tassie. Like, there's all these industry leaders that are going to be there, part of it somehow. And we'll develop it together. So we do have three performance outcomes and each one of those, I don't think I wrote that in the application information, but each one of those is a paid outcome as well. We're, so we're basically developing work together. Yes. To perform. Let's make a show. Let's do it. I mean, my idea is that we'll probably end up with six small shows, but there's also opportunity that it could be one big show. Who the hell knows? We don't know. We're just going to get all of these interested people and interesting people together in a room and and start. I mean, you know? it's going to be a recipe for something fabulous, whatever happens, really, yeah. isn't it? And one of the reasons we're able to do it for free, by the way, I just want to explain that, is uh, last year we were given a grant by the Sydney Meyer Fund that was completely open-ended. Right? We were, they said... Here's a stack of money and you can do what you want with it. And it took us, really, it took us about 12 months to work out what projects we wanted to do with that money and the lab is definitely one of them because what that Maya money will allow us to do is to pay the tutors and to pay for the room and the stipend is coming from the city of Moreland. We've successful in application there, so that's where we, we can pay people a stipend to be part of it. Wow. And we don't want it to be a money-making thing. It's not about us making money. It's about knowledge and transfer and collaboration and expansion. Thinking about the educational opportunities that you had and that Jacob had, how are you going to take potentially what you... Well, I really want to hear about Argentina mm -hmm. and I'd love to know more about amateuring as, as a course when it existed uh, I'm curious as the educational opportunities that you and Jacob have had and how you're going to lead those into this course potentially. Mm. Again, it's going to depend on what people want because I imagine there's going to be some people who are really experienced at making theatre and only need only want to be there because they want to be in a room with a bunch of people working towards something. There might be other people who are brand new at developing a theatre work. So... I really do feel like we're going to tailor it depending on who's in the room. Mm. But certainly all of our opportunities and experiences will underpin that. 
So we both did the graduate diploma of animateuring at VCA at different times. Animateuring means artistic leader. So oh. it's a French word that means artistic leader. But really it's about theatre making. So it's about learning to make a show from the beginning, you know, where you've got a seed of an idea rather than a script. You might develop a script, but it's about the process from the first idea through to the performance. So mm. theatre making is definitely going to be part of it. Writing for puppetry, I think, is going to be part of it as well because that I, th- I really do think that's a very different thing to writing a play. Absolutely. I learned that <laughs> yeah. very recently. And then, you know, how do you write puppetry descriptions so that somebody who isn't schooled in puppetry can understand what it might look like? You know, that's also part of it. I've been trying to do that for years and it's really hard. <laughs> and filming it is not necessarily the answer because yeah. sometimes you've got to write it down and show it to someone before you can make it. And, yeah, and definitely the experiences that I had at the Teatro San Martin in Argentina, the Escuela de Titeres, which means puppet oh. school. Isn't that a good word? It's titeres. Do it again, do it again. Titeres. Oh. That means puppets. And titeritero is puppeteer male and titeritera is puppeteer female. So there you go. So that course, you want to know about that course? I do. So I got a Churchill Fellowship to go because at the time there was nowhere to learn puppetry in Australia. And I had, after I finished at the College of the Arts Animaturing, I auditioned for a polyglot show and I got the job And I, because I'd done puppetry a little bit before. I also came from a dance background, so I had a real, I understood puppetry pretty quickly and I did maybe two different shows with them over a couple of years. And this is when Puppet Polygot was a puppet company. So they were primarily doing works for children that involved puppets. Mm. But I sort of was really aware that I didn't know very much, that I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants. And I thought, I really enjoy this form and I want to know more and I want to be better at it. But there wasn't really anywhere else, in, there wasn't anywhere in Australia to do that. So I tried, I applied for a Churchill Fellowship and I got that, which was some kind of miracle. But the, the guidelines of the Churchill is that it has to allow Australians access to knowledge that you can't get here in Australia. So going to somewhere else to learn about puppetry really fitted into their kind of remit. I have to explain also that what I'm going to tell you about this course is 20 years old. So I don't know if it's still running in this way because Argentina's been through hell and back a number of times since I left. So, you know, they used to have money for the arts. I don't know if they still do. But the course was a three-year course. The first year was concentrating on skills training. Actually, the first two years is concentrating on skills training. So it's like an introduction in the first year. And the second year, you deepened that knowledge. And then the third year, they made a work. Most of the most of the year, they were working on an independent project to create their own show. And the tutors were on call for them, regardless of, you know, depending on what they needed. So wow. I joined them for the second year of that course. And we did classes in voice, manipulation, dramaturgy, puppet making, movement, and kind of theatre making. In English? No, in Spanish. Wow. But this was the other reason why I chose that course because I wanted to learn a second language and 
I didn't think learning Czech or learning Japanese would it wouldn't be as I had a little bit of French so I sort of didn't feel like those other languages would be as easy to pick up in a short amount of time so I um, chose the course in Argentina because I wanted to learn a second language and it was a great way of learning language because the tutor would say the puppet walks and he would be demonstrating it walking and you'd be like oh there's the word for puppet and walks and oh and he's conjugated the verb in that way and you know so actually it was a great way to learn but I have a really weird version of Spanish because <laughs> I can talk about set design and the soul of the puppet and theatre making but I don't know how to shop like I, I don't know the words for so many vegetables and fruits and things like that because I wasn't speaking in that way. I was speaking in art speak in a puppet school. Wow. <laughs> so it's really quite twisted. It's That's pretty unreal. funny. Anyway. You're not the only one who I've interviewed so far who has learned about puppetry from overseas through a Churchill scholarship mm-hmm. or fellowship. I'm curious as to whether or not you encourage other people to go for those sorts of things, anything that still exists as Churchill yeah, still exists? It still exists, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't had any involvement with it since I finished it, which was the year 2000, so that's like 21 years ago now, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it definitely still exists, and I think the guidelines are still the same, that it's about gaining access to knowledge that you can't get here. If you want to learn it and you can't find whatever it is, in your local neighbourhood, then step out of your neighbourhood and go and learn it for sure. Mm. Yeah. Aside from the puppet lab that's happening next year, what else is on for Lemony S? So the lab, yes, the lab will be going for the whole year from February through to December. But confirmed is we're making a new work for children. It's a schools touring work called Crow Girl and that's... A, <laughs> sounds like the theme again, but it's a story about (laughs) uh, connection with animals. (laughs) No, but it's actually about um, friendship with animals and also humans and grief and a little bit about isolation. So that will be on in the middle of the year. So it's a really different work. It's a very small-scale schools touring work, um, you know, for community halls and schools and... and, um, The reason why we want to do that is because we kind of realised in the whole COVID thing that we need to diversify. We can't be only relying on the theatres to be open and programming because they weren't. Mm. And so we're like, "Mm, we need something smaller that we can also do in the gaps, you know, like you were talking about, we had those little gaps of lockdown. Well, we, we can't get Picasso up and ready without quite a bit of money and some time so this is a kind of a much more this is a smaller work so we hope to be more responsive to kind of the situation that's continuing to unfold yeah. in, in the arts as it fluctuates yeah. between in and out and I think school spaces is a really great space to be working with because I think in those times uh those spaces really need to connect with the kind of themes that are happening around them so if you mentioned that it has something to do with isolation you're going to be actually addressing concerns that perhaps teachers aren't necessarily comfortable broaching Mm. with young audiences that theatre can in a much more successful way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So the story of Crow Girl is about a kid who's lost her dad and so her and her mum move back to her grandmother's farm and her way through the grief is that she 
starts feeding the crows that come to the garden and over time the crows start leaving her gifts. And this actually happens with crows, quite common that when people make friends with crows, they start to leave them gifts. So it becomes this exchange between the girl and the crow and then through this relationship and this love that her and the crow have with each other, her human neighbour has been watching and steps over the fence more or less and they become a, a trio. So that's the story of Crow Girl. So it's quite a simple story but I think it will be very beautiful. If we get all the funding, we'll be working with a composer called Kate Neal who is composing a uh, recorder quartet that will accompany the show. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that won't go on the school's bit. That will be recorded. And <laughs> played. But we might get an opportunity to do it live at some point with the quartet. I think that will be stunning and I hope we get the bucks because I think it will be just so beautiful. I mean, Kate's an amazing composer, but to, to have a recorder quartet, come on. Well, I mean, you're going to be the <laughs> either the bane of every teacher's existence or you're going to be really... But this is the thing. Recorders, when they're actually played properly, are astounding instruments. Oh, there you go. So, and she's talking about, you know, the big bass ones. And, ah. Oh, my God, so beautiful. Oh, that could be really cool, actually. Yeah. We're hopeful, it's not confirmed, but we're hopeful also to be collaborating with the Carlton community and La Mama next year to create a puppet parade that will go on in the puppet festival most likely working with the kids from the flats down in the Parkville Carlton high-rise estate, building parade puppets. And, you know, our plan is to kind of block off Ligon Street. Heck yeah. Is, yeah, and just dance with puppets up the street with all these kids. So that's that's a, a project that we're really hopeful about, but, you know, we've got to find the bucks. Bucks are on their way, but um, <laughs> n- not everything is confirmed yet. So Crow Girl, the puppet parade in the lab, that's mostly next year and then 2023 we're premiering a new work for family audiences it's actually a main stage work so it's the opposite of crow girl <laughs> it's quite large it's got a cast of four performers we've been working on that work throughout last year and this year and next year wow <laughs> and then it will be on in 2023 and that's it's it's got a lot of interest in on various main stage it's it's kind of Similar to Picasso's, the scale of Picasso and his dog is that kind of bigger work. And so is this forward planning, you know, years ahead, a result of lockdown pushing everything back and thus you are looking a couple of years ahead or is this just the way in which you work by having a, you know, a plan for the next few years and seeing everything come and progress over a project-based kind of time frame? Well, yes and no. Um, some of the things are just opportunities that arise. So Crow Girl we got approached by the Maroondah Council Art Space to make a work with them. That's where it'll go on next year. So we didn't plan that. It just came about. But it was that I already had that story kind of brewing mm-hmm. um, and I went, well, what about this? And they were like, yeah, that's a great idea. And, yeah, anyway, so that's how that came about. The other things, yes, we've planned ahead for them because because we are employing people to work on those things with us we need to find the money and we do that by writing 20 million grants and commi- and being commissioned and things like that. So that takes a lot of time. The work, did I even tell you what the work in 2023 is? No. Okay, it's called <laughs> Ada Asman and the Analytical Engine, right? 
we just call it Ada Asman. That's what we, and I know my daughter's name is Ada, but it's actually based on Ada Lovelace, not Ada Williams Kriegler. Oh, wow. So that story is about mathematics and it's about girls in education and education opportunities for girls. And we investigate that, that story by imagining a world where a young girl called Asman, who's a newly arrived Turkish refugee to Australia, is struggling with online learning in the time of COVID and through, I don't want to give away how, but through some magic of puppetry, <laughs> I can't believe I said that phrase, but through some things that happen, she meets across time and space Ada Lovelace. And I don't know if you know about Ada Lovelace, but she is credited with being the world's first computer programmer 200 years before we had the technology to make the first computer. She was a really phenomenal mathematician, young woman. She died when she was 36 and, like, she was extraordinary. Her mother was also extraordinary, I just have to add. Mother was incredible. So in our story, Asman meets Ada and they connect over numbers, they connect over philosophies and they connect over what's similar and what's different about their world experiences. Mm. I'm curious now, having heard about the story that you're planning and also hearing about Picasso and his dog and the other kind of stories that you tell, Crow Girl, for example, what are your favourite stories to tell and how do you approach story when the idea is seeded? I think what happens, and I'm talking about myself, I'm not necessarily talking about Lemonies' work because sometimes the story is comes from someone else like Jacob or Tamara or whatever. But so the stuff that we've done that's my stories, it usually starts with a visual image. So I already spoke to you about Picasso, how I saw those photographs, and that's what sparked me thinking about dogs and humans and how it's interconnected and how we are, who we are, and how they are, who they are, because they've been with us for 30,000 years and so on. For example, did you know that dogs... Um, are one of the few animals that have eyebrows. And oh, yeah. they've developed eyebrows because humans respond to eyebrow acting, as we call it. It's wild. It's wild. That's crazy. That's co-evolution, you know. Mm. So anyway, that's why you can't resist them when they look at you and they <laughs> do the thing and you have to give them some of the food. and It's, it's like they have worked it out, right, over 30,000 years. So anyway, I digress. So it's about it's about what sparks the story. So... The Crow Girl story is another one like that. I, I saw a little, just a little article on a BBC website and there was a story about this girl who had made friends with a crow and she collected all the things that the crow had given her in a box. And <laughs> so cute, the things, like bits of string and it looks like junk, right? But when you know, and so she's got a box of junk, right? But... When you know a crow has given her that box of junk, it suddenly becomes treasure. And that's what I love about that story. So anyway, that's what sparked the crow girl story. There there are many, many girls around the world and adults and boys and whoever who have got relationships with crows that get, if you look it up, it's so cute. People write up what they've been given that day and stuff. It's so gorgeous. Anyway, so um, that's what sparked that story. The Ada Asman one was also 
my daughter, as we, I just, as you just pointed out, is also called Ada. So when she was little, she was given a book about Ada Lovelace, and it's called Ada Lovelace's Inventions. This little picture book, mm. and at the time she was given the book was when we were starting Picasso. She she was really little back then. I think she was grade two or three or something like that. She's now thirteen, but you know that's because it's been around a while that show. She was reading the book with me and she said, this would make a good story, Mum. When you finish Picasso, you should make this story. Oh, wow. It was her suggestion. So it was her suggestion. Wow. The, the initial start of it. So that's where that idea started. But so I started looking into Ada Lovelace a bit, reading a little bit about her. And then what was really interesting to me about Ada Lovelace was that she had a mother who was a champion for education who back in the 1800s was saying, my girl isn't allowed to go to school, she isn't allowed to go to university, but that's no reason for her not to get an education. So Lady Byron, which was her mum, Isabella, she did whatever she could. She was really rich, so she was able to do this, but she developed an education program for her daughter. And the result was Ada Lovelace and this incredible mind and mathematician and all of that. When I got the first grant to start this work, I asked my friend, whose name is Viljay Denise Aslan, we call her Denise, to help me understand the maths. So Viljay is a Turkish refugee. At the time, she was an asylum seeker, and I know her, our daughters were friends at primary school, and, wow. and she's a mathematician, and so is her husband. So I didn't understand the maths that Ada Lovelace was talking about, so I said, Denise, would you come and be my maths consultant? Help me understand what this is about and what was she doing and so on. And I'm sorry I'm using both names for her because her name is Bilje, but she gets called Denise in Australia. So I kind of fluctuate between the two, but I'll try and stick with one. So Denise and I, the more we talked and the more we talked about who Ada Lovelace was and what she was able to do and how she learnt that stuff, and then Denise was a maths teacher and mathematician in Turkey, and she started to talk about, her experiences of teaching girls and the difficulties that are there for some girls in some parts of Turkey about gaining education and access to information, all that stuff. So actually that's that character of Asman came about because I was having lots of conversation with Denise about mm-hmm. her experiences of being an educator in a country where education is complex for mm-hmm. cultural reasons. So that's where that story started from. So again, it was started from a visual image in that book, but then the whole thing developed because I was having really interesting conversations with Denise and her experiences. So I'm writing the story, but she's the co-creator of the work. So I'm writing the words, but the content is as much hers as it is mine. Amazing. And it's really about those really fantastic relationships that you build along that way. Mm. Sarah, it's really interesting to hear about your approach to storing and how you speak so passionately about the works that you're creating as you're creating them. I've only got time for one more question. So what is one of the most standout shows for you in puppetry that you've seen in your career? Yeah, I I, I thought about this before we met, Pete, because I had a feeling you were going to ask me something like this. So it took a bit of delving to go back and find out what it was called because it's a long time ago. I mean, I've seen many great shows, but one of the ones that that really comes to mind is a show that was done by the Minsk Academy of Arts. 
So this we saw this show in 2004, I think, in the Potsdam Festival in Germany. Uh, we were there as part of Black Hole's uh, tour of Caravan, Jacob and myself, Colke Hennenberg and Roddy Primrose were all in that show together. And so it was a whole lot of puppet works and there was this one piece and it's, it was called Eternal Song. And what it was was the, it, they were students from the Minsk Academy of Arts in Belarus. And what was so extraordinary about this work, they performed it all in, I think, in Russian, so we didn't understand what was being said, but it didn't matter because mm. what they managed to do was communicate the difficulties and the hardships and the struggles of growing up in that part of the world just through the most incredible, beautiful, image-based scenes. Mm. So I can give you a really great example. So one of the set pieces was a window box that was filled with rocks. Mm. So, you know, like usually a window box is filled with herbs or flowers or or weeds, if you look out Ada's window and you can see her window boxes filled with weeds. But nevertheless, it's usually something greenish, you know. This was a window box filled with big, nasty-looking rocks and one of the performers comes on and she's got a big, long skirt on and something in her skirt and she stands, she straddles this box and she pulls out a hammer and then she pulls out these nails, like 12-inch nails, and on the edge of the nails are these really vivid blue, weird-looking flowers, poppies, but they were blue. Wow. And she starts to pull away the rocks and get the hammer and she's just hammering this, this line. She's sewing a, a bed of metal blue flowers. And it was so disturbing watching a farmer sow inedible food. Mm. And what we learned about later was that you can't eat any of the food that's grown in mints because it's fucking radioactive. Oh, my God. So the soil is so polluted from years of just the Russians just dumping their rubbish there that it's poisonous. And in this one image, she created this, like, in-your-face, extraordinarily visceral people from, you know, Melbourne where we're so lucky you can grow tucker in your backyard and you'll be fine you know you saw my garlic pea. yeah that stuff is braided and looks beautiful yeah you can grow that in your back garden in melbourne but in minsk it's poison and we all had this sort of visceral response to this incredible image that this woman had created with the the nails and the flowers and the stones and the hammering it was just so intense and um i think about that show all the time the way they managed to overlay text and image so beautifully and so powerfully and I think it comes down to what they were trying to say that's and I think that goes right back to that very first conversation where you asked me why puppets it's when you marry your content to the the visual image it's just like unbelievable it's so powerful it's so strong that's why we use puppets because you can get into people in a way that maybe you can't with just an actor. The power of visual language. Well, that's right. We understand that. I mean, we lived half a world away from these people in sunny, safe Melbourne and we could understand what that image was saying and it hurt 
watching that. It's been so lovely hearing you speak so passionately about your experiences. We are out of time. So thank you so much, Sarah. For <laughs> so many words, Pete. So many words. I rarely speak words. I'm usually making images. Well, done very well. <laughs> So thank you, Sarah. You can find Sarah at Lemony S Puppet Theatre, or one word lowercase, on Instagram and lemonyes.net.au. Thanks for listening with us today and make sure you hit subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy, and this has been Sarah Kriegler. Uh, thanks, Pete. And we'll talk to you guys again soon. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> what a lot of nonsense. Oh, it's hard, isn't it? It's Thanks for listening. Now, we want to hear from you. Each episode, we post a series of stories and questions related to our guests. Follow us on Instagram at One Orange Sock Productions or subscribe to us on YouTube at One Orange Sock. You can also find our episode blog at OneOrangeSock.com. Our title music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Barnier. Without them, this podcast could not be possible. Stay tuned. We'll be back soon with another great episode of Talking Socks.